It's Monday, August 13th, and this is The Daily Dive. A year after violent protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, which ended with the death of a counter-protester, white nationalists are at it again. They gathered for a white civil rights rally called Unite the Right 2. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters, was at the rally and will fill us in on the scene there. And also the news that you can't trust anyone at the White House. Omarosa is back with a new book and a secret recording of her firing. Next, there's a fierce battle over your bed. The mattress industry is being turned upside down and it might be the perfect time for you to buy a new one. The world's largest mattress retailer is under threat of bankruptcy and online bed-in-a-box retailers are planning to open up brick-and-mortar locations. Nathan Bomey, reporter for USA Today, joins us for more on the unstable mattress industry where there are more locations to buy a mattress in the U.S. than there are McDonald's. Finally, David McCabe, reporter for Axios, joins us for the wild west of children's entertainment. Gone are the days of Saturday morning cartoons. Kids can access an endless amount of children's programming with on-demand platforms and streaming services. Children's content is still largely unregulated on these streaming platforms, and it is bringing new challenges for producers, policymakers, and parents. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. May I ask you a couple of questions? Uh, Does the president, is the president aware of this? Uh, don't, let's not go down the road. This is a non-negotiable discussion. I don't want to uh, negotiate. I just, I've never talked, had a chance to talk to you, General Kelly. Yeah, so if this is my departure, I'd like to have at least an opportunity no, uh, to understand. We can, we can talk another time. This has to do with some pretty serious integrity violations. So I'll let it go with that. The staff and everyone on the staff works for me, not the president. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. So you're joining us right now near Lafayette Park. You're at the Unite the Right 2 rally to see what's going on there. We'll get to that in just a moment. We wanted to start off with this other news coming out of the White House. Just seems more and more evident. You really can't trust anybody there. Former White House aide Omarosa was on Meet the Press over the weekend. She did an interview saying that she recorded the interaction she had with General Kelly when he fired her from her position there. That was a pretty shocking development to learn on Sunday that Amarosa had been tape recording in the Situation Room, supposed to be one of the safest places or most secure places in America. Her conversations with Chief of Staff John Kelly and what point he fired her. This is something that was shocking to a lot of people to hear and was a sign that Amarosa has recordings and that she's going to use them. Could she be in any type of legal trouble for recording in there? Like you said, it's supposed to be one of the most secure spots. There's a sign outside the door. It says no cell phones. You know, you can't have any type of recording devices. Could she be in trouble for something like this? Yes, this is the kind of thing she could get in trouble for. She would be violating a number of security measures that prohibit having tape recorders or cell phones in that room. And the first recording she's releasing that she said she has turns out to be one that could be uh, fraught with problems for her. We have a little clip of that. Let's play it right here. I think it's important to understand that if we make this a friendly departure, we can all be, you know, you can look at look at your time here in, in uh, the White House as a year of service to the nation, uh, and then you can go on without any type of uh, difficulty in the future relative to your reputation. She recorded herself. She said that she did it because she wanted to protect herself and prove that she wasn't lying about everything. You know, they said that she was running around through the White House, tripping alarms and whatnot. And she considers that part a threat specifically, that John Kelly was threatening her reputation, meaning you'd ha- you got to go quietly. 
she has said she thought that that was an implied threat that they would punish her. There would be consequences if she didn't go quietly. She also alleged that his campaign tried to essentially give her hush money by paying her and keeping her on staff in exchange for signing a non-disclosure agreement where she would not talk about her time in the White House, nor would she say anything negative about the president. She was offered uh, $15,000 a month. And this comes ahead of a new book that she's going to release with a bunch of crazy stuff in there. Uh, She says that she once walked in on President Trump chewing up a piece of paper and swallowing it in the Oval Office. She also says that there are tapes of him repeatedly using the N-word. This goes back to The Apprentice days. Obviously, she's trying to sell a book. If she's gone this far to record and stuff, who knows what else she has? That's right. There's no telling. She claims she has recordings where you can clearly hear the president's voice and that she's willing to release those. And she seems to have no sense of loyalty or need to protect the president left. We can hear the sirens in the background. You are at the Unite the Right to rally. The organizers were billing it as a white civil rights rally. What's going on there so far? You're right. It has gotten a little tense while we've been on the phone today. I'm about a block from Lafayette Park where Black Lives Matter and Antifa protesters have taken to the streets. The police moved in about two minutes ago to clear the streets. This is coming, as we know, about only 20 white nationalists, part of this group, joined each other in front of the White House. It was a small group. They were surrounded by police, including police on horseback as they rallied. They were vastly outnumbered by the counter-protests. There are thousands, likely, of counter-protests out here representing a range of groups and issues and the real full spectrum, I think, of the left here protesting them. The uh, permit application was asking for as many as 400 people. And you were saying there was only about 20. So it does, does it look like it might heat up some more or is it fizzling out? When it comes to the white nationalists out here, they're, they're not going to get it any larger. It was a rather small group. It remains a rather small group. But the question is, do the tensions flare with the counter protesters? There's a palpable anger. People are very angry. They're chanting profanities directed at the Nazis, at the president. There's just an immense amount of anger out here on the street. The president had a chance to comment on Twitter saying that he condemned all types of racism and he wants peace for all Americans. And obviously we know from last year the kind of stumbles that the president had when he was condemning the violent actions that happened there. That's right. There was a lot of criticism that when the president said that there was violence and hatred on many sides, that he was defending or creating a sort of false equivalency between white supremacists and anti-white supremacist protesters. We saw again on Sunday morning, he tweeted that he condemned all violence and all hatred, but he didn't call out the white supremacists by name. And that's still generating a lot of anger and criticism directed at the president. They want to hear him say specifically that he disagrees with the white nationalists that are out protesting in front of the White House. With the amount of counter protesters there, does it really seem like it is the community coming together to let these people know that they're not welcome there? Uh, What do you see there? I'm seeing a lot of different groups with a lot of different messages, everything from Black Lives Matter to Antifa to gay rights groups. We're seeing students. We're seeing suburban parents with their children and strollers. There's just a wide variety of people that have taken to the streets in Washington, D.C. But I do think you're right. There is a unifying message that they are against the white supremacists that are rallying in the park. Ginger Gibson, political reporter for Reuters. Thank you. Thanks for having me. (laughs) 
Yeah, it's not a bad time to be buying because the competition is taking the form of pretty intense discounts. And that's, you know, in fact, Mattress Firm is engaged in what the CEO of Temper Sealy called irrational discounts. Joining us now is Nathan Bomey, reporter for USA Today. The mattress industry is kind of going through some type of upheaval right now, and no one is safe. Traditional mattress stores are in trouble. Bed-in-a-box sellers are kind of in trouble right now. And I just want to start off with this part because I saw in your article and I didn't believe it at first, but you write that there's now more places to buy mattresses than there are places to buy a Big Mac. And it's actually true. Those numbers bear out. It's so crazy. I never realized how big the mattress industry was. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. This is reflective of how intense the competition has become to get mattress buyers in the store or onto the website. You know, this is an industry that has been engaged in a really intense competition now for really several years. And I think it started to heat up when companies like Casper and Lisa and other online sellers jumped into the space. And that forced the traditional mattress companies to rethink what they do. But the reality is that they continued to expand their business models and Mostly that was Mattress Firm as a the giant in the industry just continuing to get bigger and thousands of mattress stores have been added to the industry over the last several years. And that's led to a situation now where it's just over expansion. We have way too many of these things. And while the industry might be going through a crazy time, it's actually a pretty good time to be a consumer because they're coming at you with so many deals and free shipping. You can try the bed out for months a lot of times with these online sellers and still return it if you didn't like it. So the time is kind of right as a consumer to to purchase a mattress. Yeah, it's not a bad time to be buying because the competition is taking the form of pretty intense discounts. And that's, you know, in fact, Mattress Firm is engaged in what the CEO of Temper Sealy called irrational discounts in the sense that they have turned up the heat so high that they are now engaging in discounts that are undercutting their profitability. And so on the other hand, you got the online sellers and things are getting really hot there where you've got dozens of these companies now competing against each other. And one of the ways to get your attention is with a bigger discount. That's good for consumers. The only cautionary tale here is that in some cases, the CEO of Lisa told me that there are some companies that are compromising on quality. So you want to keep an eye out on for that. A lot of your story revolves around the nation's largest mattress retailer. And you mentioned the name Mattress Firm. Um, And they're going through declining sales. There's a threat of bankruptcy, possibly because of uh, some financial scandal that happened with their parent company. What's going on with Mattress Firm? Yeah, Mattress Firm went through a series of acquisitions over the last few years. They they got Sleep Train, Sleep Giant, they got Sleepies. I mean, they, they've gotten really big over the last several years, and they've gotten too big. And that has really led them to be in too many places, and now they can't support this type of physical real estate footprint. We all know that regular retailers are struggling as it is, and so it's not great to have a big physical real estate footprint in an industry that's getting disrupted by online companies. So that's one problem. And the second problem is the scandal that you mentioned, which has happened at Steinhoff International, their corporate parent. Steinhoff has basically been found to have overstated how much money they had by billions of dollars. This has affected mattress firms significantly. And in fact, they've had to write down the value of the mattress firm unit on their balance sheet by a lot. And that is raising the serious prospect of bankruptcy for mattress firm which could inevitably lead to even more store closures. They've already closed a few hundred, and that could mean a few hundred more. 
Let's talk a little bit about the rise of these digital online sellers, these uh, bed-in-a-box things like Casper or Lisa. They've made an imprint in the business, and uh, you know a lot of people like that. It's simple, bed-in-a-box. You just open the box, and it kind of almost like inflating on its own, yeah. and it becomes its own mattress all of a sudden. I think Casper is the one that most people have heard of, and you know it's it's a unique model, and I think it appeals. There's marketing that has really connected with consumers. When you watch a YouTube video of a Casper mattress unfolding and before your eyes, it's there's something really fascinating about it if you've never seen it. And so that has appealed to a lot of people, and I think they've also succeeded by promising something that the traditional mattress retailers haven't figured out, which is that a lot of today's modern consumers don't want to haggle for a product. They just want to go and have a fixed price. They want to have good customer service and they want to know what they're buying. A lot of people report that it's tough to shop for a mattress because you don't always know what you're buying versus the online companies have provided total transparency in the products. And so at least most of them have. And I think that that has helped them gain traction. But customers do still want to buy a mattress in person a lot of times. My producer Miranda just actually went through the whole process. They went to the mattress store, tried out a bunch of different ones. And, you know, you want to go lay down and know what you're getting into, basically. Yeah, I mean, if you're following the recommendations, you're supposed to be getting, what, eight hours of sleep a night, and that's a third of your life, basically. <laughs> so this is right. something that affects you around the clock in some ways. And so you don't want to make a bad decision. And I think that that inevitably means that most people will probably still buy these in person. But, you know, it's kind of like you think about cars. And, you know, there used to be a day when people said no one would ever buy a car online. And then suddenly Tesla came along. Now they're selling cars that are more than $100,000 and people are buying those online. So they may test drive it real quick, but then end up making the actual purchase online. So that's something the mattress companies have to figure out too, how to engage with customers who may want to go and try it out, but then ultimately order online. And I think you know Casper and Lisa are providing their mattresses for people to try out in person and then ultimately buy online. So that's something traditional retailers are struggling with. And I think now traditional mattress retailers are struggling with that too. Nathan Bomey, reporter for USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Hey, thanks a lot. now is David McCabe, reporter for Axios. We're going to talk about the wild west of children's entertainment. There's been a big explosion of digital options for kids, and it's pulling their attention away from traditional formats like live TV, and they're using all this on-demand programming, which is all the Netflix and the Hulus and the YouTube channels. You mentioned the article, how gone are the days of Saturday morning cartoons, and that was one of my favorite things to do when I was a kid. I'd wake up early before my parents got up. I'd be stuck to the TV watching my shows with the volume turned down just so nobody would wake up and disturb me. And that's not really the case anymore. What's going on? Well, of course, uh, I, like you remember, remember those days. But the trend we're seeing now is effectively children are migrating to the platforms their parents are using, those on-demand platforms you mentioned, as well as platforms like Instagram or Snapchat that have their own version of programming within their social app. There's some interesting statistics that came out in the article. They're saying that children ages 2 to 11 are spending an average of roughly two hours with a multimedia device per week. They're also averaging an hour and 22 minutes per week with uh, some type of DVR saving a show and watching it later. 
and that a lot of kids really don't even know what a commercial is anymore. This decline has happened slowly. You know, kids still watch television, as the numbers suggest with the DVR numbers, but they are moving slowly towards these less regulated and, frankly, just more fractured platforms for content. And TV networks are trying to modernize and keep up with that stuff. The FCC even uh, proposed some things that would relax the rules related to kids' TV programming. There are some folks at the FCC who have pushed a proposal that says essentially that these rules that cover the kind of children's programming that broadcasters have to offer haven't kept up with the times. So the idea is that digital platforms are now competing with traditional broadcasters, so you would loosen the rules on traditional broadcasters. What are some of the things that they're trying to change? Because broadcasters have to adhere to a lot of mandates to keep their licenses. Like uh, they have to have a, a certain amount of educational programming for kids. What are they trying to change so that they can keep up with these other platforms? The rules have to do with how much they have to provide in terms of programming with limited advertising per week. We've also raised concerns about the fact that there are certain pieces of content. My colleague reported a 30-minute block of Schoolhouse Rock doesn't count towards children's content. So essentially, the, the complaint is that a level that there are just too many specific rules that they're being micromanaged. And then they're also concerned about some of the content obviously provided on these things. There was a little string of time where some weird videos were getting targeted towards kids or conspiracy videos were even targeted towards kids. Right, exactly. And what can happen is obviously these platforms often autoplay videos one after another. And the concern was that on YouTube Kids, people were manipulating that algorithm to feed bad content to kids. So maybe they'd start in a place where a parent was fine with what they were watching and they'd end up with something that parents didn't want them to watch. So they've come under fire for exposing kids to that kind of content. And obviously there are just way more platforms for parents to keep track of than maybe there used to be before. You make a point there as well. You know, the kids a lot of times are on these devices themselves. You know, they'll walk away into a corner, sit on the couch. They learn so fast how these things work. They're just watching the content on their own. A lot of times a parent could be pretty oblivious to what's going on with that. For some kids, they reach a point where they suddenly don't want to be doing the kids thing, right? They don't want to be watching YouTube kids. So then they might have a motivation to try and find a workaround to get to, you know, YouTube, the classic YouTube, where of course there aren't any parental controls or there are fewer parental controls because as you know, one colleague reported that there's essentially a point in which kids don't identify as a kid anymore, even if they are. Yeah, that was super interesting. Uh, Dylan Collins, he's the CEO of Super Awesome. They try to get kids safe digital content out there. He said, yeah, when a child hits the age of around seven, they self-identify as, quote, not a child. And they reject those things aimed at kids. So, yeah, even then they're going to start seeking out content aimed at older kids. And I know a lot of people in uh, Congress, they're trying to address some of this stuff. They're throwing some money at the National Institutes of Health to study the impact of this technology on kids' health. But, you know, how long does that take to find any uh, reasonable findings from that? This is the big picture here. If there's an increasing concern here in Washington and among civil society groups about the impact on children, particularly of technology, and also on adults, these technologies that have sort of addicted us, they would say, whether that's the infinite scroll on Instagram, I mean, I think a lot of adults are, are familiar with and, and understand that feeling, and the way that technology has been applied to children as well. And as parents, you always have to monitor what your kids are watching. And in many ways, this is a tale as old as time. We can all remember sort of the video game panic right. that took place when console games were very popular. And so it's not an unfamiliar feeling for parents or for regulators to grapple with new technology, but the rate of things are changing is, is happening so quickly. Yeah. And the FCC is going to be voting on some rules later this year. So they still, uh, I think you can still make public comments on what things should be changed on that. David McCabe, reporter for Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. All right, that's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive.